Pew Bible. For the director of music, for Jedithan, a psalm of David. Truly, my soul finds rest in God. My salvation comes from him. Truly, he is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will never be shaken. How long will you assault me? Would all of you throw me down, this leaning wall, this tottering fence? Surely they intend to topple me from my lofty place. They take delight in lies. With their mouths they bless, but in their hearts they curse. Yes, my soul, find rest in God. My hope comes from him. Truly, he is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. My salvation and my honor depend on God. He is my mighty rock, my refuge. Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. Surely the lowborn are but a breath, the highborn are but a lie. If weighed on a balance, they are nothing. Together, they are only a breath. Do not trust in extortion or put vain hope in stolen goods. Though your riches increase, do not set your heart on them. One thing God has spoken, two things I have heard. Power belongs to you, God, and with you, Lord, is unfailing love, and your re you reward everyone according to what they have done. Amen. Thanks, Radhika. This is my lost and found water bottle for this week. If it's yours, come get it after the service. All right. <clears throat> so we've been talking this series about feeling better and that the, for a Christian, um, the route to feeling better is not doing whatever you want that you think might make you feel better, but is actually learning how to better feel. That is how to deal with our emotional life in relationship to trusting God and in faith and what we're meant for and what our identity is and all of those things. And as that works out, we learn how to be better at feeling the result in the long term is a much more consistent experience of feeling better, right? But over this whole series, we, we have one memory verse, um, and it focuses on devotion, which is this one, Psalm 116, 1-2. So um, if you're memorizing this with us, if you're part of High Point, let's say it together. I love the Lord, for he heard my voice. He heard my cry for mercy, because he turned his ear to me, I will call on him as long as I live. Okay, so today, the thing we're talking about calling on God for and believing that he'll hear our voice is in relationship to weariness. Weariness takes lots of different forms, right? For some people, it is long-term um, illness or pain, right? Um, and there's just a lot of that. It's amazing how much we can do in medicine. It's amazing how much medicine can't heal. Um, it can be 
just duration. For example, Psalm 13 that Deeridge read, how long, O Lord, is this going to last? Right? There's this sense of weariness when you feel like the distance you have left to go is more than the distance you believe you can go. When you, when you, no, even if you feel like you can keep going right now, but, but you think that however much further you think you can go isn't as far as you would have to go, you begin to feel discouraged. Right? Doesn't matter how good you feel right now, you'll already start to feel like you're weakening. You'll already start to feel discouraged. It's, it's one of the things that your flesh will do against you because your body is programmed to save energy. And so the minute you don't think you can make it, your whole body is kind of programmed and the flesh just kind of takes over and says that we shouldn't go another step. And it pulls back on your resolve in this incredible emotional way. And you have to know that you can do like three times what your body tells you you can do. Right? My wife was in labor the first time. Women tend to say in labor, especially their first time, I can't do this. And it, it actually doesn't help to point out to them that that is a futile statement. Right? Say, baby, you're gonna do this. <laughs> doesn't help. Right? And so my wife said that like eight or nine times and I'm like trying to come up with something encouraging to say. Didn't really know what to say. So it was, some, it was kind of like, I, th- I think you can do it. And she'd be like, no, I can't. And so then the midwife, who'd been doing this for like, I don't know how many years, she was like, I know, sweetie. I know. Right? Because she's recognized, this is an emotional statement. She's not making a metaphysical statement. She's making an emotional statement, right? And that's kind of how we function, right? Because I'll just assure you, she had that baby. Right? Even though she was so sure five hours, seven hours before she had that baby, she couldn't do it. It's amazing what necessity will do. Right? And so how long, Psalm 43, my soul is faint and I long for you like I'm in a desert land. Like there is this, when you you don't know how long it's going to be, there is this sense of thirst, right? The comparison is to thirst, right? I I don't know how thirsty you've ever been, right? But there is this—I've been thirsty. I've I've been out in the Rockies at high altitude not knowing how much water I was going to need, and I ran out of water— and I was seven miles from camp, and it was not a good situation. And I was, I mean, I could hardly make my mouth move around. And I was really thirsty. And that, you get this sense when you're tired, that whatever is in you that you need to give you what you need to get to where you're going, you don't have enough of it. And so the minute you think you can't go as far as you have left to go, you start feeling an ever-increasing amount that whatever is supposed to be inside of you that gets you there isn't enough. It's like a thirst. And spiritually, you feel this. You feel this thirst for God. Like you need more. You whatever is supposed to be in there, some kind of good feeling or feeling of strength or resolve or something. It just feels like it's failing, right? And then in Psalm 62, 
the issue is, and I'm not getting it, right? I'm not getting it. God is silent. There's no stream here. It's a little bit like my wife and I are, are getting ready to go on a, like a three-day vacation, four-day vacation to Colorado. And it's like a 13-hour drive. And it feels a little like driving across like South Dakota in one of those places where there aren't gas stations, right? And your kids are asleep and you don't want to stop and you don't know where the next gas station is. And you're at less than a, you know, you're, like your little light comes on and you're like, oh, I've got like 64 miles, right? At this speed, probably less. And you don't know where the next gas station is. You don't know if you've got enough. And there's this kind of like feeling that's kind of like, it's 3 a.m. I don't really want to run out of gas in the middle of South Dakota. But I might. And I don't want to wake up my wife and tell her. And sometimes that's how we feel. Like when you feel like your life is coming apart, your faith is coming apart, you don't want to wake up your wife or your husband and be like, I feel like I'm coming apart. You just want to tell them after it happens. Right? But that's what it feels like, right? And so when we deal with this whole issue of like being weary, what you need to also realize is that this feeling of being weary is, is very common because it's either the, the, the general um, predictable end of self-inflicted brokenness. If you don't live in faith and virtue, you'll do whatever you can not not to find yourself weary, but you will break your relationships and you will all do all kinds of stuff that eventually you'll be there out of your own doing. Or if you trust God and you seek to live a life of virtuous faith, faith and virtue lead to weariness because it is, they're both long-term kinds of things. Faith is believing in something you've never even seen yet and living in that direction without ever having fully tasted of it, right? And virtue is believing in the long run that doing what's right is worth it. And oftentimes it's carrying the weight of others. Oftentimes people who seek to be virtuous people, people of virtuous faith, they're carrying a lot of other people's weight because they've grown strong. And every time they grow a little stronger, so they, they go, okay, I can carry that. And they put another thing in their backpack to get everybody there because they care about people. And you end up, you know, with burning thighs for decades, morally speaking. That was a hiking metaphor. I hope you got it. Okay. So um, one of the ways you can say, so what's the response? What do all the Psalms, how do all the Psalms essentially respond? And it's basically this. Confess your weariness, but dwell on God's goodness. Confess your weariness, but dwell on God's goodness. Okay. So there's going to be two parts, but four steps. Okay. So the first part is confess your weariness. Right? That is, essentially what he says in Psalm 62 is, I'm trusting, but I'm tottering, and people want to topple me. That's the first four verses, right? So he says, Truly my soul finds rest in God. I'm going to go in just a second about how that might not be the best translation of that line. But he says, He's the rock of my salvation. And then it says, I will never be shaken. And then he says, How long will people assault me? This leaning wall, this tottering fence, they want to topple me. Right? And so he feels like a shaky fence. And he's, he's being honest about that. And he— David asked all these questions in Psalm 13. David asked, how long? God, how long is this going to go for? How many more miles do we have? Because I have this many miles left, I feel like, and I don't know how many miles there are left to go. Or 
I'm faint and frustrated. In Psalm 43, he says, Therefore my spirit faints within me, and my heart is appalled. My soul thirsts for you like in a parched land. And then in these verses where it says, My soul finds rest in God, that, that word rest also means silence in Hebrew. And so actually most translators have not translated this in the history of the church, my soul finds rest in God. They've translated it, um, my soul waits in silence for God, even though my salvation comes from Him. Right? And, and in modern translations, the English Standard Version, the New American Standard Version, a bunch of other versions that tend to be a little bit more literal all translate it that way. And I think that's actually the right way to translate it. That in silence, my soul waits for God. That is, not in my silence, because I'm going to be talking. That's what the psalm is. It's not, I'm not waiting for God in my silence. I'm waiting for God in His silence. I'm going to be confessing what's really going on with me. Right? Now, but one of the things that's really important about this confessing is that you have to not just be honest with yourself, but you have to be honest about yourself. Okay? So a real confession in any of these emotions we're dealing with, but especially in in weariness, is confess—being honest with yourself about how you're feeling. Right? Are you tired? Do you feel like you don't have enough miles left as you have miles to go? Do you feel just thirsty? And you just feel like there's there's not enough water coming in for how much expenditure of sweat there is, right? Or do you feel like God is silent and you've been asking, you've been trying, and you've been like, trying to do, and you just can't, you just can't hear enough, you can't, like, you're not, whatever God's part is, it just doesn't feel like it's happening, or you just don't know how much, how much longer you can deal with this or that, or the, whatever it is. How much longer do I have to deal with this indignity, injustice, infirmity, Right? A bunch of things put together, right? Life comes all at once. Okay, so you need to do that, right? It's, there's no sense. Denial isn't helpful, right? I was, I was studying this particular psychological situation some people find themselves in, which has an extraordinarily high suicide rate, okay? Um, the standard American suicide rate is about—attempted suicide rate is about 4%, and in this particular category, it's in the 40s for everyone, Okay? And for people who deny that it's true about them, the suicide rate is 45%. For people who confess it, but don't do anything radical to change it, it goes down to 40%. And then for people who do radical things to themselves to change it, it goes back up to 46%. Which demonstrates that not just for this problem, but actually for a number of human psychological experiences, sometimes you can't change it but it doesn't do any good to deny it either. Th- that is the nature of infirmity. That's the nature of brokenness, right? There's a lot of people who say, they talk a lot of rot about how they believe the world's broken. The world's, bro- you see the world's, the world's complicated, it's broken. What they mean by that is, you can't have any rules because the world is broken. See two sermons ago, right? You can't have any rules because the world is broken, so I can ingest what I want, sleep with who I want, and tell whatever I, say whatever I want, whether it's true or false, because the world is broken so we can't have rules. Not true. What it does mean is, 
is that we are going to live with a lot of crap that we can't fix. That's what it means. And what it requires of us is not this belief that you can't have any, you can't expect anything of me, and we can't have any rules. No, what it means is we have to hold all the more firmly to the truth in faith and build into our character all the more virtue by which we can stand in a world full of infirmity in ourselves and in our neighbors and in our family and everyone around us. And in the midst of it, cry out, how long, O Lord, and know that in him we have the miles in us. In him and with his people, we have the miles in us it will take. Now, not only be honest with yourself, but you have to be honest about yourself. Because one of the things that people don't often recognize is that weariness and other conditions, like the ones we're talking about this series, they're not just in you, they're doing something to you. And if you don't understand how these things affect you, it'll, it'll really damage you and people around you who would really love to help you. I mean, let me give you an example of this. Um, there's this phenomenon that pastors see a lot because we do funerals, which I will simply refer to as self-righteous grieving. Okay. You get this in a lot of things. Anytime somebody's been hurt, so this is true of people who've been like victims of sexual abuse or been abused by their parents or whatever. You also see this with people who sometimes who have long-term physical and, and medical infirmities. And you see this especially with people who have somebody die. Which is, have you ever, have you, have you ever been around somebody in your family or, or you've been close to somebody who some, their spouse dies, their spouse of like 40 years, okay? And Every word everybody speaks to them is so insensitive. Right? Have you ever been around that? It's very common. It's not a psychological disorder. It is a predictable human behavior. Okay? Most people, when they have been hurt or lost someone, will, will in the grieving process, fall into a period of time of this sort of like self-protected self-righteousness where if somebody will be like, well, I guess we're going to have to trust God right now. And they're like, oh, that's so insensitive. Like, tell me to trust God. I mean, do you trust God? How could you say that at a time like this? Shouldn't you be offering some, like, word of pain and lamentation with me instead of telling me to trust God, right? Like, and as a pastor, like, I want to hit that person with a baseball bat, right? And I, of course, you don't. You say, well, you know, sometimes when you're grieving, other people's words seem more, they're, sometimes they are insensitive because people don't know what to say. And in their embarrassment, they really do say insensitive things and so on. But see, here's what happens. Sometimes that grieving person becomes to believe that they no longer have the responsibility to listen graciously. It's no longer their job because they're hurting to think the best of the words of others and hear the best in what they say. It's no longer their job, Right? to care about that because they're hurting and those people aren't, and those people can't know how much pain I'm in. And it's, it's very difficult to, to be with like an 84-year-old woman who's all tied up in this and to be like, sweetie, you got to get out of that. Well, she's lost her husband of 54 years. And yet, it's so obvious if you're watching that it's not just what's happening with her it's what's happening to her. And for her to actually grieve well and receive love 
and to blossom and deal with and trust God in that, she's got to realize that and she's got to get over it. And that's one of the reasons it takes us so long to get over things. Listen, if if you're sexually abused and no counselor can talk to you even, because even they have to like dance around and not say anything about like, it's been 10 years. You've got to, like, you've got to do something here you can't just be hurt forever. Like, like you're going to be hurt. There's maybe infirmity in you from this forever. But listen, we got to go somewhere with this. You can't use this to not let anybody ever touch you again. You can't, we can't live like this, right? You've got to realize that every pain in humanity isn't just with you. It's doing something to you, right? Your life's hard. Great. Is it making you irritable with other people? Because you're driving away the people you need to receive love from, is is what's happening. Is it making it so you can't hear correction? Because every correction seems way out of proportion to the amount of mercy you should be receiving, and therefore no correction. Like, what's it doing to you? Because it's doing something to you, and you had better confess that too. You had better, in your confession, especially to God, you'd better do both. You'd better say, God, this is how I feel. I'm I'm tired. I'm angry. I don't know when this is going to end. I don't know how long you want this to go on for. I don't don't know how long I need to deal with this pain. I kind of feel like it's unfair. Right? And then you had better get to— And I can see what this is doing to my heart. I can see the kind of lies I'm growing willing to believe. I can see how doubt is affecting my willingness to have resolve. I can see these things happening. Oh God, help me. And any any way of, of confession in which you don't do both is gonna hurt you. You only confess what it's doing to you and not how you feel, and it will function kind of like denial. Where you'll really try to be—you'll pray like you're asking God for help, but if you don't just say, God, this is how weak I am, this is how hurt I am, ultimately you'll kind of try to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. You'll kind of be like, you know, this is God, this is what's happening in me, I'm going to stop with that, and and I'm going to get back on the right path, and we're going to be good. No, you're not. Because you have to strive graciously. You have to strive in mercy. And that kind of striving has to start with a confession of how you really feel and how weak you really are and how hurt you really feel. And and you've got to let that out. Yeah. (laughs) Right? Talk to me. Sometimes, especially guys— it's okay, especially to God. I mean, there's nobody that lopped off more heads than David. I mean, he was a dude, right? And yet he did not hold back when it was time to talk to God. And he could, and he could weep saturated pillows full of tears. And it made him strong. But it made him strong because he didn't just confess his feelings. He confessed what it was doing to him. And when those two come together, there's an incredible amount of power in confession. And once you learn to do that with God, 
in him first, the exact same dynamic can heal friendships and marriages and parent-child relationships and an incredible amount of human brokenness and infirmity. But you better sort it out with God first, and then from that strength, allow it to move into other relationships. Got that? Oh, that was helpful. Okay. And then, okay, now here's the thing. Then you don't dwell. That's not where you dwell, right? Dwell means to live, abide, stay, right? You confess, and then you don't dwell. It's really important because what most of us do is we confess, and then we talk about it, and we sort of confess it again, and then we talk about what we wish would happen to those people, and we we start circling the drain on that thing driving in our car, talk, talking back to somebody who's not there. We're just, our hearts are full of this stuff. And one of the things you see over and over again with David is he confesses it because it's in him. He says it, he speaks it out, he confesses it. And then in relatively short order, he moves on to, this is the truth. Not only is God there, but God is good, and God is good to me. That third one can be the hardest sometimes. Now, there's three, three steps to this one. Um, one is, recommit your heart to God and implore others to join you. Recommit your heart to God and implore others to join you. So you could think about it in three R's, okay? Reset your resolve regularly. See, see, oftentimes we think, we think that we're like a light switch. Like we believe in Jesus, we flip the light on, it's on. No, it isn't. It's not like that, right? It's, that's not how it works. You're, it's, like, it's, it's like something where you're always sliding downhill a little bit. Like there's so many things in us that just kind of pull us and push us down. And very regularly, you need to go, no, this is what I believe. You need to reset your resolve. You need to reset your resolve regularly. And I would encourage you to reset your resolve regularly through some kind of, and I'm sorry, this is an R word, ritual. You need to regularly reset your resolve with a ritual. Morning prayers. These things were used for hundreds of years where people would wake up and they would pray to God and they would do it often through the Psalms and oftentimes through a Psalm that would say, this is how I feel, but this is what is true. And they would reset their resolve every morning, right? You and I need to reset our resolve regularly with some kind of ritual, usually. And you need to, and you, and you can do that with like praying with your spouse, praying with your roommates, praying, having family devotions, having these things that function in certain ways where, but one of the things you're doing, this is what you need to know you're doing it. We are resetting our resolve, right? And so David says, yes, my soul finds rest in God. I will not be shaken. My salvation and my honor depend on God. He is my mighty rock and my refuge. Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts to him. For God is our refuge. You see, he, and he, he does it. He says it for himself. He explains what's happening to him. He says it. He says, this is, oh, my soul. He talks to himself. And then he talks to everybody else. He says, let's all, listen, all for all of us. Listen, God is our salvation. God is our salvation. And there's no enemy larger than him, right? 
the, the third step is to dwell on the foundations of truth, the foundational truths, right? When things are confusing, you need to go back to the basics, the foundational truths, and it will reorder very complex situations. And this is how just, this is how good decision-making goes. You have a very complicated decision to make. You go back and say, wait, what are our biggest convictions? What do we know are true? What are our values? What are the facts? And very complicated situations remain very complicated, but you still know what to do. And you'll have the resolve to do it because you'll have clarity, right? And so in, in this one, he's, he's, he looks at two main foundations, and these are always the biggest foundations for any Christian, any human to go to. The first is what is true about humans, and the second, what is true about God, right? And what he says about humans is, surely the lowborn are but a breath, and the highborn are but a lie. If you weigh them on the balance, they're nothing. Together, they're only a breath. Actually, the, the, that third line says, if you weigh them on a balance, they rise, right? Because he's imagining a two-panned balance, and if you put man on here, mankind, and then you put anything on this one, it goes like this. Right? Now, that translation, lowborn and highborn, is an inference. What it literally says is, surely the Son of Man is but a breath, and a man is but a lie. It doesn't actually say highborn, lowborn. It just says, Son of Man and a man. Because every human being is, an essential, is essentially both of those things. Now, that's true in two ways. It's true, one, of all his enemies, right? Of all his enemies. Of all of the things, all the men and women who stand against you, all the people who try to hurt you, listen. He's saying, listen, look, look they're but a breath and but a lie. <sighs> they're vapor. And all of the, all of the rage, all of what they can do to me, it's a lie. All these games we play, all these weird things we believe about ourselves and about our enemies, so it's a lie. But it's, it's also true about you and me. My life is just a breath. It's brittle. It's fragile. It's like a vapor. It's here once. It's gone the next. I am, I am pre-deceased, just like you. And there's a thousand things I think about myself that are not true. I spend the majority of my life, for all I preach about grace and sin, I spend the majority of my life thinking I'm a good man. Honest, honest to goodness. That I'm a pretty good guy. <laughs> That's why I need a wife, right? I, and children. I think all kinds of crazy things about myself, and they're lies. And it's only when I come back to the foundational truths that God tells us about humans that I remember them. And I realize that my enemies are but a breath and but a lie. And I realize that I'm just a breath and a lie. And so I need God. He is bigger than my enemies. And he's the only thing that can save as fragile and confused a being as myself. Right? But, but he, he dwells even more on the foundational truths about God, right? He says, look, I know this, right? One thing God has spoken, two things I have heard, right? That is Hebrew poetry for this is really important, right? If I go back to the one thing I heard since I was a kid over and over and over again, right? In the Gibson house, it's love Jesus and show me, don't tell me, right? It's like my kids going to be like, hey, one thing I heard a thousand times was my dad say, right? If you want to date a guy, you ask, does he have a job in a Bible? Like that's the number one, right? 
And so, so David's like, I, there are some things I have heard over and over. There's some, a couple things I know are true that with God, there's three things I know about God. One, there is power with God. Power to overcome my enemies, power to save me, right? There is unfailing love with God, right? That God's love is faithful and his silence is no indication of his care. Okay, I'm gonna say that sentence again, ready? His silence is no indication of his care. First of all, he is not silent. The heavens declare the glory of God. God was screaming to you your entire drive to church. You just didn't see it. He is not silent. We have our hands over our ears and eyes. But even our percep— but so our perception of God's silence is no indication of his care. And, and then he says— and you reward everyone according to what he has done. He does not mean that legalistically. The Psalms, including this one, are full of appeals to God's grace and his generosity. But he, God deals in his grace and his generosity in relationship to what we, whether or not we will pledge our faith to him and live faithfully towards him, and that that really does matter. And so when he is king and all these people are trying to kick him over like a tottering fence. And he, he says, no, God, I'm going to trust you in faith and I'm going to seek to live in your virtue and I'm going to seek to add to my knowledge, goodness, and goodness, right, to my faith, goodness, and goodness, knowledge, and self-control, and perseverance, and godliness, and brotherly kindness, and love. I'm going to, that's what I'm going to focus on and these people are going to try and kick in my teeth. But I believe that in faith and faithfulness, you respond to that. You care. You're not going to let them just me over like a fence and tear me down like a bent wall. I believe that you will reward everyone according to what they've done. That doesn't mean he doesn't believe in salvation by faith and by grace, but it does mean that he believes in salvation by faith and by grace because it says in Habakkuk, the righteous one will live by faith. Trust. And he's like, if, I know those three things about God. His power, his unfailing love, and he rewards those who trust him. He will reward everyone according to what he's done. And I know that men, including myself, are a breath and a lie. I need to trust in him. He is my salvation. No matter how silent he seems. Right? And the third is, and we need to jump out of the psalm briefly for this, is that if you're going to do that personally, you got to know what an answer looks like. Right? Because if you and I just decide for ourselves what God answering our prayers would look like, it's going to look like things like, I want an audible paragraph from God, right? I want God to send me flowers. Like, I want, I want to get a really great job. I want to get into my first choice program. I want my spouse not to age. I want, like, you, it, it's always going to be something ridiculous. It's going to be a lie, Right? Son of man is but a breath. A man is but a lie. Guess what kinds of demands men make and women make of God when they're deciding what an answer looks like? It's a lie. It's always a lie. Right? Remember our memory verse of the year? What does First Peter say? God promises those who trust him. His divine power has given us everything we need for a life of what? Godliness. Therefore, make every effort, my brothers, to make your calling and election sure, because if you do, you will receive a 
rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Those are the promises. Those are the two promises. God can and will, through faith, make you godly. And that is the greatest treasure that can possibly be drawn to, is the greatest thing your life can be lived for. An extraordinary ordinariness in the real roles and relationships and rhythms of your life. It's more ours, but they're all real. In which God makes you like Christ himself, which is the most beautiful thing in all of creation. And therefore, through godliness, you can bear in your very being the beauty of God himself. And there is nothing that is even in any proportional way a mild competitor with that great beauty and greatness. And that is available to the rich and the poor, the man and the woman, every person. And two, that he will receive you into the eternal kingdom with a rich welcome that is full of the beauty of that one, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Those are the two promises, right? And so you got to know what an answer looks like. And so in Psalm 43, David kind of lays out like what an answer would look like. He's like, I'm thirst, I'm parched. I'm, I feel like I'm dying of thirst in the land. Oh God, will you hear me? And then these are the five things he says. He says kind of like, this is what an answer would look like. He says, one, let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love for in you I trust. Let what you've spoken and shown about yourself be re-spoken to me. Let me find it spoken over me. Let me find something happen that shows it to me. Let me realize again, even in your silence, apparent silence, that your unfa—that's the same word as steadfast, as unfailing love in Psalm 62, right? The word hesed is kind of the great Hebrew word for love that doesn't stop and never—and doesn't quit, right? Show me that your steadfast love, and let me hear about it in the morning. Two, make me know the way I should go, for to you I lift my soul. Why? Because his greatest desire is godliness, right? This his greatest desire. So even though there's people trying to kill him, right, what he wants is, God, my great desire is just, I want to know what I should do. I don't want to be paralyzed in fear and moral confusion. I want to know what the next step is. What should I do? Right? Three is, deliver me from my enemies. Which means both help me now in all the temporal pursuits that I'm engaged in, but more than anything, don't let them destroy my soul. Don't let them kick me over like a tottering fence. Don't let them break my faith. Don't let them turn me away from the path of virtue and trust in you. Don't let them destroy me. There's a lot of ways to be destroyed. Some are temporal, some are eternal. The Bible says that every pain can be received as training. But the loss of trust, the loss of faith in God, gets us nothing. Nobody likes pain, but if you receive them as wind sprints, in faith, they will make you virtuous and they will make you stronger. And for all that pain, from wherever it comes from, you will get something for it. The only thing you will get nothing from is faithlessness. There is no good end that produced there. Right? Therefore, teach me to do your will. Teach me inside the knowledge and the wisdom of knowing what your will is and how I should go about it and the, the dynamics of how it works. I want to, even when I obey you, I want to do it in a better way because you're my God. I want to do it like you. And then last, let your good spirit guide me onto level ground. That is to the right path. 
Do you see how that's the answer he's praying for? Do you see how different that is than what our natural desire and prayer is going to want to ask for? See how different that is? And so if you're going to confess your pain, but dwell on God's goodness, one of the things you have to do when you're dwelling on God's goodness and praying some, towards some kind of end is you, you need to know what it would look like for God to answer your prayer, which means you need to know what God actually has promised and what God is actually doing and how God actually works, because that's how he's going to work. He's not going to change what, the way he works because of our pissy attitudes and because we want this thing. He doesn't care about your job. He cares about you. He cares about you having your daily bread. But he doesn't really care about your promotion or even whether your job lasts anywhere near as much as he cares about giving you the most beautiful thing in the universe in yourself, which is the image of Christ. And he will burn your job to the ground if it makes you one I Oda, more like Jesus. And so if we don't know what he does, how he does it, what an answer looks like, man, we're never going to think he's meeting us anywhere. We're never going to think he answers anything. We're going to sit around and think forever that he's just silent. And he's not silent. He's never been silent. He isn't the sort of God who's silent. He is the God who, from the page one of the Bible, speaks and shows himself. I mean, Genesis 1 could have written— God got out his pottery wheel. Right? Most ancient Near East myths of creation, that's what they actually do. Right? The God takes some dead body of one of his wives he killed and makes the earth out of it. Right? In Genesis 1, God speaks. And that's what he does for the rest of the Bible. He speaks. <clears throat> and he is still speaking. And you and I can only hear it if in our confession of our pain, we can confess how we feel, but we also realize what it's doing to us. How anger is making us angry. How doubt is making us increasingly skeptical. Because ultimately, in the end, there's two responses to weariness, right? Talking back at your soul and not giving up. Right? In verse 1, he says, In silence I will wait for God because he is my salvation. And then in, in verse 5, after, after he gets done with his lament, with his confession, he says, Soul, wait for God in silence. He is our salvation. And then he goes through eight or nine more verses about why his soul should wait on God. There's, see, do you see that one of the most important things is there's no passivity in this. Even in faith, there's gracious striving. Faith is itself a striving sort of thing, full of energy and action. So, so many modern authors have talked such rot about faith, about its passivity and its weakness. They clearly have no experience with it. Faith is, faith is not meritorious work, but it is labor. Because there's a thousand dismissivenesses in our mind. There's, there's a hundred emotional pulls. There's a thousand ways in which we just want to pull back and give up and turn over and say, well, the, the world is complicated. I'm just going to do this. There are a, a million pragmatisms to give ourselves to. And faith doesn't fall off either side of the pitched roof, but it walks 
by his good spirit, a straight path, a right path. It's full of drama. And it just, no matter how many miles you think you have left to go, and how many fewer than that you think you can go, the fact is, is that you're not hiking up a mountain. You're in a canoe going down a river. (laughs) Being carried by the steadfast love of God. If you'll just stay in the boat and steer it a little bit, you will make it there. You have capacity you've not yet connected with, not yet plunged into. Most of us are still running on the fuel of the flesh. That's like trying to run a car burning wood. And then we wonder why we can't get to Colorado. Because we don't even know what it's like yet to so trust God that we actually receive and walk in the fuel of the Spirit. You see, if If you're driving at 3 a.m. across Colorado and you don't know where the next gas station is and you're in that open grassland and you have less than a half a tank, less less than a quarter tank left and your little light comes on, that is one feeling. It's another feeling to have driven all night and to look at your phone GPS and for it to be down to three hours from 13. It's a totally different feeling. You go, all I have to do is not quit and keep driving and this car will get me there. That's all I have to do. Just keep, I can't tell you thousands of times driving my kids across country, driving my family to New York and to Colorado to see my wife's family. How many times I've been driving in the middle of the night and looked down at that thing and seen how many miles were left and how many hours were left. Information you don't get in faith. And thinking, all I have to do is not quit. But what is true of every journey on which you're being carried is that there is an end point, and if you keep going, you are getting closer, and it is not an infinite travel. David's appeal was always to God. For all, for all that he said we have to do, do you notice that all the things I'm telling you to do, they're not great works. It's not like build a huge building or like, kill a thousand people or like, I mean, it's like, it's, it's not like some crazy thing. It's like, like get a hold of yourself emotionally <laughs> and, and, and be honest with yourself to yourself and with yourself. Learn how to trust God and have endurance and faith and do it this way, right? All five of those things that he wants. He says, why, why would God give him? It's, It's not because of his righteousness. He says, do this for me because I belong to you. Because I trust you. Because I know that I'm a breath and a lie. Because I can't do this by myself. Because you've promised to be with me. And that in that weakness, you make me strong somehow. And so I trust in you. And to you I lift my soul. And to you I have fled. And you are my God. And I am your servant. Right? And so if we recognize that, and if we, if we really believe, not for my own righteousness, O oh Lord, because before you, no one is righteous, right? Psalm 143. But because, for your great namesake, and because you are righteous, would you deliver me from my weariness? You will find, a, you can this day 
maybe not get out of the thing that's making you weary, but you can get out of the feeling that you have to go more miles than you can go. That you can do battle with today. That you can beat by faith. And that is one of the only things that you can control. And that is one of the things that God has demanded you control. It's the only condition of salvation. It's faith. So as we, as we consider this, guys, why don't you come up? As we consider this, um, in this well, as we sing this last song, um, which is lift our prayers to you, do that. As you sing, as we play the song, um, would you do those things? Would you, maybe you need to confess because you haven't let yourself. Maybe you need to confess what it's been doing to you. Maybe you need to remember what you should, what you should be saying to your own soul about God's character. Maybe you need to remember what you really are as a human being and how big or not big your enemies really are. And maybe you need to remember the three things that are true about God that you can know down in your bones. Or maybe you just need to remind yourself that you've been praying for all the wrong things and you can't see his answers because you just haven't believed what he's actually spoken and shown us are his answers. And maybe you need to combine that with faith and try to figure out how to steer the canoe down this river. Because you're getting closer to the destination if you trust God and you don't give up. Father, as we sing now, please help us um, to have the kind of emotional life in you that we're meant to have. We know that there's so much to know and we want to add to our faith goodness and knowledge. We want to be full of your wisdom. We want to see all the intricacies of the beauty of how you've made things and how you save and how you work. But we also want to experience what it means to feel right in you. To feel like we know we belong to you. To know that you're carrying us. To know that you've spoken and shown yourself. To know that you in you is power, unfailing love, and that you reward people according to what they've done. Help us in this moment, Holy Spirit, to walk in you and help us to find what it is you want to show us so that weariness doesn't take us and so that we don't give up. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.